0: I do a lot of investigative reporting, but in this case, this wasn't a prosecutorial process. This was a let's talk to everybody and really dig deep through people's memories and through the medical records to understand, and letters also, and journals, to see uh, what people were thinking and feeling at the time.
1: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Uh, the Galvins looked like the manifestation of the post-World War II American dream. It was hard work, upward mobility, a handsome, accomplished dad, a remarkable mother of 12, yes, 12, uh, perfectly aligned with the baby boom, births from 1945 to 1965. But all was hardly what it seemed. Shockingly, six of the 10 boys were diagnosed with schizophrenia, creating chaos of breakdowns, violence, abuse, and secrets. How could this happen to one family? How could this family even remain a family in the midst of such disruption and damage? And finally, scientifically, what does this kind of concentration of this disease teach us. This family saga is in the expert, compassionate hands of Robert Colker. In Ro- Robert's work has appeared in all the top magazines. He's been in New York Magazine, Bloomberg, New York Times Magazine, Oprah. His book, uh, his previous book, The Lost Girls, was not only a bestseller, it was picked as one of the notable books. And Robert has a brilliant eye for finding the stories that are hiding in plain sight or the stories where ordinary people are in extraordinary circumstances. So Robert Kolker, welcome to RJ Julius.
0: Thanks so much Roxanne. I'm really glad to to be the first author (laughs) in the series. Uh, It's I was saying before we went on that I've done a couple of these now with with various bookstores and book clubs and um, and publishers as well, and uh, and it's um, exciting to see during this difficult time everybody's sort of experimenting and improvising together. There's a lot of goodwill yeah. from, the, from readers as well. Like people are showing up and 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 watching it, which is wonderful. Really, yeah. Wonderful.
1: People seem game. You know, I mean, what'll be interesting to see is how much of this sticks What it starts to look like? Will, you know, are all these 250 people, like this is good enough for now? Or is this like a good way to do this? So we'll we'll get to see all that. Mm -hmm. So let's let's set the stage um, for this uh, story. If you would have come in contact with the Galvins in the 1950s, how would they have been, described to or characterized to somebody looking at them particularly Don and Mimi the the parents of the Galvin family in the early years what what would you have seen
0: they were a a young air force family in Colorado just as the air force was being uh, relocated there Um, they were part of a new vanguard a new future in the american west they were coming from new york so they were a little bit snobby and they both were a little bit anxious about going to a dusty old town like colorado springs but then they found a life there and really embraced the place and they kept having children when they moved there they had three boys with a fourth one on the way that was 1951 and by 1965 they had 12 children 10 boys and two girls and they became by that point they were famous the don the father was not only a, a handsome instructor of political science at the Air Force Academy, but he also flew the Falcons at the football games and trained all the cadets in how to fly Falcons. And Mimi's recipes were in the local paper. And uh, she was um, helping to cast the uh, operas for the local opera company. And she was known around her neighborhood as the perfect mother with a model family. And and that's, the, to, to answer your question, that's what they appeared to be, but. By the mid-60s, things were going in a very different direction.
1: And so let's hold that for a second. And then let's talk about how was schizophrenia viewed in the 50s?
0: Um, There was a raging debate going on about the nature of schizophrenia, separate from what people thought of depression or anxiety or anything else or or neuroticism or or any sort of more um, work a day mental illnesses, schizophrenia was something completely impossible to understand and and various people had various theories that all were wrong but all were going up against each other. You had psychoanalysts in the 50s who blamed mom and dad, especially mom, for schizophrenia and then you had uh, geneticists who thought that you should breed out schizophrenia from people, you should sterilize schizophrenia patients and then you had medical psychiatrists who thought that lobotomy uh, would be the best way to uh, correct uh, severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia. And they all were, were arguing with one another and they all were wrong. And, and amid this you know, great period of optimism in America where, where everyone was going to be you know, running the show in the American century, the Galvins, uh, it never occurred to them that, that there would be the slightest problem or even a big problem like, like this that could really bring them down. And so when their children started behaving oddly, the last thing they wanted to do was go public about it.
1: Yeah, and how did the... Pro- so the oldest son was Don also, and handsome, accomplished, you know, looked very logical as part of this it family. So how did the problems begin to emerge? And how did Mimi and Don begin to react to
0: it? Um, it's very possible that even as a, as a, by his mid-teens, he was displaying early signs of schizophrenia. He was sort of checking out a little bit, even though he was a popular athlete and he was, you know, he was dating the general's daughter at the Air Force Academy. He really was way more comfortable being by himself out in nature. And when he was home with his brothers, he was downright. Abusive toward his younger brothers and bullish toward them in a way that almost he couldn't control. He it's as if almost he was trying to be uh, the 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 one in charge of the family, but he didn't have the skills to do it. So he would just hit them, and and other brothers followed suit. The whole house was quite violent. And Don and Mimi, the parents, looked at this and first of all they were in denial that their oldest son Donald would ever. Do anything so horrible, so they thought that perhaps it was just boys being boys or roughhousing, and secondly, they weren't inclined to to, um, to to make this into a psychiatric or a medical thing because they lived in a world where if they brought Donald to a doctor, the first question would be, "What did you do to him? You know, what what kind of bad parents are you that caused this to happen?"
1: That was the environment. Yes, and and would. There was a hospital, uh, uh, Pueblo, Mm -hmm. that a lot of the boys were in and out of. And was it just the general sentiment that if you were diagnosed with this disease, even if it were diagnosable, that there wouldn't be any way to manage it? You would just be drugged.
0: Right. By the late 50s and early 60s, the mental hospitals were at their highest population all over the country. They just were warehouses for the mentally ill. And then when the drugs got a little more popular, when Thorazine and other um, drugs to fight psychosis started to get more popular, by the late 60s they were emptying out those hospitals because they thought the drugs were this great solution to the problem. But really they just papered over the symptoms and turned the hospitals like Pueblo into a revolving door. So by the time six brothers are mentally ill in the family, they're going in and out of mental institutions and they're all coming home in between stops there, which of course affected the six mentally well children who were still part of the family.
1: You know, so one of the things, one one of the, um, one of the characteristics that was stunning to me is the, the mother, here's Mimi, she comes from a family that's a little pedigreed on one side, always saw herself as, you know, as you mentioned earlier, a little bit above the fray. She has these 12 kids, which we could talk about what was driving. That was a, I mean, the picture on the cover, for any of you who have seen the book, I mean, is, you know, you, it, it's it's a brilliant picture and it's extraordinary. to. See. Well, I can hold it up, actually. Yeah, <laughs> Um, you know, they're all on uh, the stair. Oh, good. Your picture is good. Um, so, but in many circumstances, another mother would have said, you know what, this is a lot for everybody to cope with. I can't do this to the other six kids. These kids are going to have to be out of the house. They're going to have to be institutionalized but she did the opposite. She brought them closer to her. She would encourage them to come back home. So any sense, as you were having these conversations, what was driving that? Because obviously the six healthy kids and the two two girls, which we'll talk about, paid a huge price for that.
0: Understanding this family was really, uh... A big job to take on and it involves speaking with absolutely everyone still alive in the family. Um, That means nine siblings and one parent, Mimi, who was still alive until her death in in 2017. And um, I was determined to make it not a clinical case study of a book, but a book where you were really intimate with the family and understood exactly why perhaps Mimi did the things she did and why she didn't do other things it was my desire to make sure not that there were no villains and no heroes necessarily in the book, but that right. behaving at the same time heroically and how so being quite flawed at the same time and everybody's rationale, it seems, you know, has, has validity. Um, I, I do a lot of investigative reporting, but in this case, this wasn't a prosecutorial process. This was a, Let's talk to everybody and really dig deep through people's memories and through the medical records to understand, and letters also, and journals, to see uh, what people were thinking and feeling at the time. Understanding Mimi was difficult, but in speaking with her sister and with her kids and with other family members and in reading her letters to other family members, I started to get a sense of why she did the things she did. Mm-hmm. She really was building a, a family from scratch after feeling after several abandonments she had experienced as a child. She also um, had was a person of her time and did not have the tools yeah uh, that, that practically no one of that time would have had the tools would have been equipped to deal with something so extraordinary happening to her family. And
1: she must have been ashamed I mean this wasn't as it, you know as you said earlier, a lot of times schizophrenia was blamed on. Uh, the mother there was not much understanding about what the disease was or that it even was a disease
0: yes when when you read hidden valley road you i I talk a lot about that time period where where parents get blamed for mental illness and then finally like the other shoe dropping mimi gets blamed for it it happens a little bit later in the book when one of the sons has a psychotic break and there she is in the hospital visiting her son and at a table with a bunch of clinicians around her, she's told that she is the problem and her husband is there with her too. And he's been told he's the problem too. And in speaking with her in 2017 um, and 2016, this was like the great shameful moment of her life. She was, she was stunned. Yeah. She was paralyzed. She, right. and, and sh- I think that might go a long way toward answering the question of why she never let the mentally ill sons go after that. She wasn't going to be Um, put in that box. She was going to make sure they got uh, the care that she wanted them to get, even if that meant they were in and out of the state hospital and not uh, other hospitals.
2: We'll be back after a short break from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Catapult, publishers of Rough Magic by Lara Pryor Palmer. If you'd like your memoirs to revolve around singular experiences, Laird Pryor Palmer's Rough Magic delivers. That's what the New York Times said about Rough Magic, the extraordinary true story of one young woman's experience riding what's billed as the world's longest and toughest horse race, the Mongol Derby. This book will transport you out of your house to the grasslands of Mongolia, where a 19-year-old woman is tearing through the countryside on a wild horse, plowing through illnesses, dehydration, and exhaustion, armed with only a backpack full of snacks, an extremely limited understanding of Mongolian vocabulary, and a weathered copy of Shakespeare's The Tempest, the play that inspired this memoir's title. It's one of those rare memoirs, like Wild or Educated, where the writing is as incredible and unique as the story, and it's not to be missed, especially now that it's out in paperback. Rough Magic by Lara Pryor-Palmer, out now from Catapult, wherever you get your books. Are you looking for the perfect gift for mom, or another loved one? My mom and I live far away, and it could be a struggle to stay connected. But after I got her a Skylight frame, I can send new photos to her almost every day. It's a really easy way for her to see what I'm up to, and for us to stay connected. Nowadays, staying in touch with those we love is more important than ever. And the easiest way to do it is with Skylight, a photo frame you can email photos to, anytime, from anywhere. Skylight is a great way to feel close to those you love, even when you're separated. Multiple people can send photos to the frame, so it's a great way to keep large networks of friends and families in touch. Skylight is easy to set up in under 60 seconds. Just plug in, use a touch screen to connect to your wireless network, and enjoy. Sending photos to Skylight is effortless. Everyone in your family can just email photos to mom Skylight, and they'll pop up in her home in seconds. Skylight has a black frame, so it looks like a real photo frame that adds a beautiful touch to your home. Skylight Frames has a gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen. You can swipe through photos with your finger and even tap to thank the person who sent a photo. Skylight is 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your Skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. You can preload Skylight with your favorite photos for a special Mother's Day gift, send pictures of you, and even your pets that they didn't even know you had. You can tap the heart button and it will let the sender know you love the photo. This makes the frame interactive and fun to use. It's so simple that even my non-tech savvy mom and dad could set it up and use it in seconds. Now, as a special holiday offer for Just the Right Book listeners, you can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash book and enter the code book. That's right, to get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com Slash book and enter the code book. That's S K Y L I G H G F R A M E dot com slash book. Back to the show.
1: And Robert, you know, one of the things that's so clear in your telling the story, and when I, in the introduction, when I refer to it as a family saga, you know, you you, your voice as the explanatory reporter not the investigative reporter has a lot of affection for everyone that i'm gathering is both your style from having read so many of your other pieces and your book but it also must have meant that there you built a kind of trust with everybody in the family for them to be this open and transparent. What is it that you think when you've done this work or other work that guides you in having these kind of conversations where you want them to have faith that their story is safe in your hands?
0: Well, in general, I don't go in firing off a lot of questions, you know, I don't sit down and, and pull out a legal pad and say, let's go question number one, you know, yeah. I'm not there to, to listen and hear uh, them tell their story. And then I do a lot of trying to fill in the blanks. But more than that, there is a lot of advanced work involved in making sure that people are are up for it and, and interested and trust me as well, because I'm not, you know, I'm new to their lives. I, I spent a year talking to this family and visiting in person uh, before selling the book at all um, i wanted to be sure that they were okay with it but also um, it seemed to me that this was very sensitive private information and medical information and so the last thing i wanted was for um somebody to be so horrified that a book was happening that then it would become a contentious situation. So, so they, were, they were up for it and they also were ready to let me be independent with it. But uh, the most important thing I think is that um, Margaret Galvin-Johnson and Lindsay Galvin-Rouch, the two youngest family members, had been uh, talking with one another about a book. And Margaret in particular, the, the book was really her brainchild. And so for decades she had been hoping to write a story about her family that was really her own personal story. And she had really done the, her own advance work, frankly, speaking with every single member of her family for years and years saying, there should be a book about this family. So by the time they quite generously decided between the two of them that an independent journalist should tell the story, um, the, uh, the family members were, were ready. You know, they, were, they, were, they sort of knew that it was They'd
1: might- been primed.
0: Yeah, exactly. I should say Margaret has a book of her own in her, about her own journey that would be a wonderful book too. this turned out to be more of a group portrait, but I'm intensely grateful to her. And without her, the book wouldn't have happened. And without Lindsay, the book wouldn't have happened either because Lindsay had access to the medical records and really is the chief caregiver for her sick brothers and and has intimate relationships with all of the caregivers of those brothers. And so the medical piece of it wouldn't have been possible without her. And the historical piece of it wouldn't have been possible without Margaret.
1: And so Robert, that prompts a couple of uh, additional questions. What did Lindsay and Margaret hope the um, book would achieve?
0: Well, I think they had separate goals, um, to be honest. I think you know, Margaret wanted to tell the story of, of coming through such adverse conditions, such a difficult childhood and finding her way through trauma, which I think the book spends a big chunk of time doing, talking about both Lindsay and Margaret being the youngest in the family, yeah. having all the difficulties of the family trickling down to them. The book does address all of that, but, there, but I think she wa- th- that was her main focus. Whereas Lindsay is, is really more of an activist for on behalf of her sick brothers. She thinks that families like the Galvins, I think she's right about this, are, are, are shunted aside and, and Made to feel as if they don't exist. That even if even if the brothers aren't warehoused in mental institutions, they're forgotten by society. Um, that just the headaches that Mimi and now Lindsay deal with in terms of the medical establishment to get attention for her brothers are, is astonishing. And the toll that the medicines that were supposed to help them are now taking on them is also quite scandalous. So there's there there are a lot of issues there that that Lindsay hoped um, the book would raise would would help raise awareness and. And I can tell you that um, on both fronts, it's already been very successful, the, 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 just based on the emails I've been getting from folks who have already read the book. There are people who can relate to the book as members of large families where there have been mental illness and, and how they mm-hmm. made it through and, or didn't make it through, the, the, some heartbreaking emails there. And then there are people who are writing me about our country's mental health policy and Big Pharma's relationship with acute mental illness. And how long we have to go with that it's just stunning to see that the book is connecting with people in both of these ways
1: yeah and I mean even as a reader where i don't have any personal connection to either one of those issues you're i mean I was riveted by both sides of the story i'm I developed my own affection for everyone and what they were dealing with and was fascinated by seeing the arc of uh, the scientific work that has or hasn't been done. And we'll come, we'll come back to that um, in a second. But the other thing that I was struck by is that members of the family like Margaret and Lindsay didn't flee. I mean, I could see if I, if, it, you have these two women, they're in this like literally insane house with violence and feeling unsafe, that they're not necessarily protected. That you would just say, I'm getting out of Dodge. I, I'm just out of here. Good luck to all of you. Yet Lindsay actually comes back. Margaret, you know, they stay involved. What do you think it is that contributed to this? strong sense of family against which you can imagine a lot of people would not have been as generous in thinking about their family in these circumstances.
0: Both of them in their way certainly intended to leave early on. And and the question you're asking is the question I asked both sisters and a lot of the other family members many, many times as I was reporting this because my, my two questions going into the book were how could all of this happen to just one family? you know the science question, and how does the family remain a family, which is the the human factor of this um, I think that uh that eventually um it, it it becomes a relatable story for us because we see two different ways that that these two women have been able to go through the and emerge past their their horrible traumas and and just so. People watching know like there. There's not just being in a house with mentally ill brothers. There's also sexual abuse involved. Um, there was a murder suicide in the family that scarred the family. Uh, one one child was was removed from her family. Uh, uh, you know, presumably to give her a better life, but really she you know felt a rejection because of that. There's all sorts of. It's astonishing that it all happened in just one family. Yeah,
1: but, like just. And, and you know, the other thing is, like, I think it's interesting that you say that there's a book uh, to be written by Margaret about Margaret or by Lindsay about Lindsay, because their own journey, which you, excuse me, spend some time on, in, in their putting one foot in front of the other to try to like take a broken piece and put it back together. What's that Japanese art where they break the pottery and you <laughs> wanna see how it's put back together? I mean, I thought about both women that way, that they had worked hard to put themselves back together without denying what had happened.
0: That's right, and they, and they do it in different ways. I mean, uh, uh, Margaret has a lot to say about self-care and about setting boundaries and about nurturing herself and and being kind kind to herself even after so many traumas and lindsay uh, has years and years of therapy under her belt as well and uh, and has converted her energy in towards service towards service toward her mentally ill brothers and um and you know neither of them are are, are angels again and neither of them are devils they're just doing what they're doing yeah. and um and i love the complexity of that i love I love writing a book where everybody is doing something a little bit different and they all have their rationale and, yeah. and nobody's wrong and nobody's right, but they are, and they're all members of the same family. It feels real to me. I mean, I have a sister and I have a brother and I'm sure if I emailed them tomorrow saying, do you remember this thing that happened 25 years ago? They would say, no, it happened a different way. And we would. Yeah. And that's even without horrible childhood trauma. You know, Imagine what it would be like in a yeah. family like the Galvins. So, so it feels authentic to me.
1: I'm one of six. I'm very familiar with the concept um, no that no, that didn't happen that this happened um Robert, I want to spend a few minutes on the science um so one obvious question that you started out approaching is so genetically, is there evidence that schizophrenia is genetic? How is it possible that six people in one family have it. And you spend some time in the book talking about the research that's being done. Uh, there was a woman, I think, Lynn uh, Delisi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was some progress made on the gen- genetic research and how you might treat this, find it. Where, where is all of that?
0: Um, it's a lot of um, one step forward, two steps back over many, many years. It's an interesting study in how science works a lot of the time, because I think, as a, particularly as Americans, we see science as this onward, ceaseless march of progress. Like, first, yeah. first we can't cure polio, and then suddenly we have a, we can cure polio, and that's that. But it's really a lot messier than that. There are conflicting philosophies and theories that are, that are colliding with one another. There's groupthink, and then there are other people who have tunnel vision. Um, and the the thing about schizophrenia is that it it is not a specific disease the way that say covid nineteen is a disease like we know molecularly what covid nineteen is we, schizophrenia is a is a name we give a bunch of symptoms and have grouped it together into a diagnosis called schizophrenia and that uh that that definition actually slips and slides and changes over the years so um it's quite possible that it is merely uh just that, just symptoms that we don't really understand the root causes of. I don't mean to be so squishy in talking about it, I mean clearly it, it runs in families but it doesn't run in any logical way. It's not like parents send it to their kids, it's not like it's a recessive trait where you need two schizophrenia genes to get a child who's schizophrenic.
1: And the boys are not even ill in the same way.
0: Right, exactly, it manifests differently in different people and so it's possible that everyone including well, so-called well people is on a spectrum and that you just have different vulnerabilities toward, toward, um, developing mental illness. And, and maybe the environment does have a, have a handle in it. It's the, it's a riddle that started the day that they decided to call it a psychiatric illness. They said, well, if you look at the Kings and Queens of Europe, you can tell that mental illness runs in families. But at the same time, we have all these people where it seems to pop up all by itself. So how can we how can mm-hmm. you say that it really is genetic? And, um, and, and then we were off to the races with many, many rounds of arguments about it. However, we're in the genetic era now where we have sequenced the genome and we have found not just one, not just two, but far more than 100 different troubled genetic areas that might be a player in schizophrenia. That muddies the waters a little bit, but it also gives us, gives us some sort of starting point to try to zero in on what's going on. The Galvin family's genes presented a perfect petri dish to be studied by two different teams of researchers over many decades. And between the two of them, they have made some significant advances in understanding how the disease functions. It's very possible that families like the Galvins and including the Galvins are paving the way toward understanding this disease better and better with each passing year in a way that the overall genome study has not.
2: We're back after a short break from our sponsor. Today's episode is also brought to you by Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Diane Shaw. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps is an entertaining true life memoir, Diane Shaw, first female sports journalist for a major national daily. Diane details her experiences breaking the glass ceiling in sports journalism and laying the path for today's female reporters. Diane is candid about the sexism and discrimination that she encountered as she wasn't one of the boys. Diane tells comedic, fascinating, and sometimes tragic stories about her adventures in journalism, featuring some of the biggest names of the era. Examples include the time that a tipsy Mickey Mantle tried to hit on her with a creepy greeting card, the time that she was uninvited from the baseball writer dinner, as no women were allowed, or the time she snuck into the Republican Party Gala. Other famous folks I get a mention are Frank Sinatra, Paul Newman, Dennis Quaid, and Larry Bird. Diane went on to write for the New York Times, Newsweek, GQ, Playboy, and Esquire. She has also written four mystery novels. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps offers behind the scenes details of stories of a trailblazing career and the prejudices facing female sports writers during the 60s and 70s. Right now, for a limited time, Redlining Books and Indiana University Press are offering an exclusive free chapter download for listeners of this show. Visit iupress.org, jockstraps. Dashbook to download a special sneak peek. "Feral to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Dan Shaw is available wherever books are sold.
1: Is it fair to say that not enough dollars or attention is being paid to the study or is it just that big, a, a tangled web and just will take decades and decades to solve? Or is it both?
0: Well, quite a number of the advances in in mental illness in terms of drugs were accidental or, or were drugs that were developed for something else. For instance, Thorazine was like a battlefield anesthesia of some sort, um, and, or anesthetic. The, the um, Very, very few people have woken up in the morning their entire careers and said, I'm going to come up with a drug to solve schizophrenia. Mm. Um, the reason for that is that it, it seems impossible, so they quite a, people quite often go into a career that seems more plausible, like fighting depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder. Also, it's extraordinarily expensive. Um, uh, rats don't get schizophrenia, so if you're gonna test a drug, it has to be on humans, and that's risky and expensive and, and could really destroy your career if you spend too many years on it. But mostly, I think, it's a matter of a stigma that this population does not speak for itself. Families try. There's NAMI, which is a wonderful organization, but it's not like lung cancer or, or breast cancer or prostate cancer. The, the, there, there just isn't that kind of constituency that can campaign to make things happen. And then I think the biggest reason is that the drugs they have to mute the, the symptoms of psychosis, they quiet down the patients so much that it, they are just good enough to not really motivate a lot of people to try to find something better. And that's kind of a tragedy for the people who are on them their entire yeah. life because it, it really doesn't put them any closer toward a cure.
1: And then Robert, in, in doing the research, did you, or in thinking about the Galvin boys, is there some optimism about an approach between uh, drug therapy and um, talk therapy that, Gives hope to the possibility that people diagnosed with schizophrenia could, could function and live a life.
0: I'm, um I'm glad you mentioned hope because I want everyone watching to know the book does have hope. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, there's a lot of sadness in the book, but there is, there is hope for the future. I think that if the Galvins, if families like the Galvins existed today, there would be a good deal less stigma and perhaps more early attention to some of the issues that the boys were having. I mean, this is an illness where the psychotic breaks quite often happen in your early 20s, but the warning signs could be much earlier when you're 13, 14, or 15. Now people are more on alert for those warning signs. And if through a a combination of therapy or medicine you can have an early intervention, even a softer intervention, not not an institutionalization, you might be able to prevent future psychotic breaks that make it worse. What everybody knows is that each psychotic break makes you worse, and hard, you can't climb, the, the more you have, the harder it is to climb, to turn back.
1: Back, back.
0: So um, what if you, instead of having 30 psychotic breaks, you just had five in your lifetime? You right. know, you, it's a difference between a functional life and a non-functional life.
1: Um, what what in, in doing the research, well, let's spend a minute talking about how you even came to the Galvins, Mm-hmm. And then, how is the book that you wrote different from what you might have expected?
0: I, um, I got an email one day from an old friend of mine, a great friend of mine, who edited me at New York Magazine for 10 years. His name is John Gluck. We both since have moved on from New York Magazine. But he went to high school with Lindsay and was friendly with Margaret as well over the years. Um, he knew, uh, over, of course, when Lindsay and he were in high school, Lindsay wasn't talking about her family. Um, but over the years, sure. he kind of got the gist. And, and then they came to him, Margaret called him, Lindsay saw him in New York. They said, you know, we, we want the family story to be known, but we, you know, it's, we just have one piece of it. That, and, and so his suggestion was to hand it to an independent journalist. And I got on the phone with them, and they were both so energized and so positive and so upbeat in telling me some of the most horrid, horrible things that had happened to their mm-hmm. family. I, I was in disbelief and i i I mean the way I tell it now it's like, it's like they had to cheer me up after talking to their family. <laughs> and and I, I really thought that it would be that, that given so many other family members were around and given how scandalous so much of the information was that there would be at least one family member who would be against it. And so I said, let's take it slow. You know, let's, why don't I get on the phone with your mother next week and one of your brothers the following week and keep going for eight or nine weeks, talk to some medical researchers as well, see what there is to say, see. And this to answer your question, like this would be the way that I could find out what the book was. Was it the story of two sisters surviving a horrible childhood? Was it a story of an American family that, that nearly is destructed and then rebuilds itself? Is it a story about a medical researcher who encounters this family and then you know, makes an incredible breakthrough? I didn't know what it would be. But as I, what I, I knew what I wanted it to be pretty early on, which was a, a multi-generational family saga that you could read like you would read East of Eden or The Corrections or some novel about a family where you get to know the parents and that by the time you get to know the younger generation, everything they do is happening in the context of what you know about their parents' lives as well. I, I, that To me, that was irresistible, and, and I'm just grateful that, that the, the Galvins were on board to, to talk in this way, so that the book really feels that intimate as you read it.
1: Well, and you know, the other thing that I thought was really smart is the way the book is organized. So you've got the parents and the names of all the kids, and then for people who haven't read the book yet, you're highlighting uh, the person that that chapter is reflective of. Because you could imagine with 12 kids and two parents that you could quickly start conflating one sibling with another, but the delicacy with which you portray each one of them becomes clear. It does feel very much like a family saga in reading it, interspersed with the science that obviously shapes so much of what's going on.
0: Yes. And the science part, I had some goals for that as well. I, I, I mean, I, I love books like, like Moneyball for instance, where like, I'm not, I'm not the world's biggest baseball fan in the world, but, but because that was such an addictive narrative, right. I, I didn't mind the fact that he was spoon feeding me lots of very technical information about baseball statistics. Right. In fact, I ate it up with a spoon. I was like, this is so cool. I'm learning something new and there's a, a narrative that I want to know the, how it, what happens at the end. And so that, uh, one of my goals has always been to, to write a book like that too, where you can, you can weave in the technical information Ju- giving the reader just enough so that they know that it is setting the stakes for the narrative and not not so much that they feel like they're being, you know, made to eat their vegetables.
1: Yeah, well, and I do, I, I think you do that. I think, uh, my, you know, I feel the same way about Moneyball. I couldn't care less about Baseball, frankly, and I was mesmerized by that book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Robert, how does the family feel about the book?
0: Well, to the extent that it, it's raised awareness for what the family has been through and what, what a lot of acutely mentally ill people and, and what their families go through. They're all very excited. Um, you know, we haven't mentioned it yet in this session, but the, but the idea that it's part of Oprah's book club just, just is uh, brings it to an entire new level for them. Not, they never had dreamed that that anything like that would have happened. So they're very happy about that. And, um, and then from there, everybody's reaction is very personal. There, there was one family member who said that there was a lot in the book that was news to them because I was bringing in perspectives of people that hadn't been shared with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and- the
1: medical records that they might not have known about, right?
0: Exactly. You know, th- Things that were happening after they left the house. Because remember, it's 20 years of kids. So some kids <laughs> know, left the house. And then um, others who, you know, who who uh believe they wa- they wanted to be in there less and others who want to believe they wanted to be in there more. I mean, this is the the reality of a um of a group portrait like this ends up being that quite that way. And then of course it's a real portrait, it's not Walt Disney. So people say unkind yeah. things about one another in the book from time to time. And so there was fallout there. They they said, uh oh, you know, I-, I need to get on the phone with my brother and tell him why I said that in anger or you know that 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 sort of thing. Yeah. But I think that's um again like the, the I don't think the book would resonate if, if there was a lot of whitewashing in it.
1: Yeah. But the the that would come through. You you would start to be cynical about what you were writing, I think.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So Robert mentioning you mentioned Oprah. So, you know, in this interview you seem like, you know, a sweet <laughs> you know, reporter sitting in your house in Brooklyn, but now you're a rock star. (laughs) How how did that all come about? That, um, how'd you hear about it? How'd she hear about it? Uh, What made Oprah pick it up? Because, you know, being picked up in this way, you know, just changes the trajectory of a book.
0: Well, what I I learned later is that, is that Oprah Winfrey and, and Prince Harry were cl- going, are going to collaborate on a documentary for, for the Apple Plus TV streaming service about mental health. Um, I guess Oprah has a new deal with Apple Plus where she's producing lots of shows for them. So yeah. one of them is going to be this. So one day, the books editor of Oprah Magazine, Lee Haber, sends my book to, to Oprah saying, you know, maybe this would be of some use to you with what you're planning for Apple Plus. And then, according to Oprah, she came back to Lee and said, why don't we make this the book club book? Because she liked it. So the, this, all of this, I was completely ignorant of. And there was even a week or two where my publisher and my agents knew about it and I didn't. But they didn't want to tell me because, you know, you can't predict the future. And what if it didn't happen? Then they would have destroyed me completely. <laughs> uh, so, so one day I'm at home and, um, you know, the, the the world is changing, the virus is coming, the, the, everything's shutting down. I'm wondering if there's going to be a world economy that still exists on April 7th when the book comes right. out. And, you know, or if there's even gonna be a way to ship books on Amazon by then, you know, uh, uh, it was, you know, th- that was on my mind. Of course, there's far more worse problems in the world than me and my book. There's-
1: Well, not, not, not for you at that moment. Right.
0: But the phone rings and it's no caller ID. So I let it go to voicemail and there's no voicemail. So I figure it's spam. And then I get a, uh, an email from um, uh, the director of publicity at Doubleday saying, I have a reporter who's trying to call you. Can you pick up the next time it says no caller ID? And I say, okay. And then I think, why is he being so cryptic? You know, what's the, why not just say, you know, Entertainment Weekly is gonna call you. And then the phone rings and I pick up and I, and on the other line, she says, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I I did not do that thing that that people say you do or you'd say, this is, you know, you're just playing a joke on me. This is just a, you're just kidding. Instead, what I did is I burst out laughing because um, I, uh, I knew that there could be only one reason why she was calling. And I was, you know, just flabbergasted. And um, after I caught my breath, I told her that, um the family took such a leap of faith you know talking about everything that happened to them and the the idea that she would would be seeing them in this way and acknowledging what they went through is is essentially the the greatest thing that could have happened under the circumstances and she yeah. you know she was nice about that
1: yeah how was the conversation with
0: her was good she um well first she was very funny cuz she was like i've been trying to call you all day but uh <laughs> The damn fault <laughs> exactly you know, you're a hard man to reach but uh but it but she um she she mentioned the prince harry documentary and then i i told her that the family would have you know would be so amazed and then i told her that the truth which is that the book for me really was the challenge of a career to try to tell the stories of 12 kids and two parents yeah. and to weave it all together with the science was really a, bit, a really a huge heavy lift and that i was so grateful that she liked it, and then I and I told her I wanted it to read like a, like like a novel, like like a, like East of Eden, and she said she she thought it did. She said she she said it reads like a novel. That's why that and that's why she liked it.
1: Yeah, pretty cool.
0: And your people will call my people or something like that. No.
1: <laughs> did you have to go find people?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. The have people? Well, I mean, then I had to, then I spent, after I told my wife, I spent an hour on the phone with my editor and with my um, my agent, where I would, all, all they just kept asking over and over, what did she say? What did she say? What did she say? Because yeah. I had to know, too.
1: It's pretty great. You know, what's particularly satisfying, I think, about it is, given what the uh, hope was for... Uh, the book by Margaret Lindsay and obviously you to give it that platform uh, on exactly the issue that was important. You know, it's a pretty—I don't want to call it a stroke of luck because the book's that great that it deserves it. But you know, get, when I when I think about this environment now, uh, I, I was reading like a Kirkus that's talking about all the books coming out in May, June, and July. And, you know, you feel heartbroken about all the effort the books got written, they got sold, they got agented, the publishers put on, and then everything that, you know, the sort of ground under, I mean, all of us about everything is shifting, but in this little planet of publishing, it's, it's a very different landscape to try to get, Attention. So I'm, you know, I'm thrilled for you and the family that it will get the kind of attention that it deserves.
0: I'm just intensely grateful. I mean, I knew I knew all along that doing a deeply reported narrative nonfiction book, I knew that that was a big bet. That that was a bet at the big table. That was not a small bet. That was a big bet. Yeah. And and I knew that um that sometimes they really connect and they really hit. And people say, wow, a juicy narrative nonfiction book that I really that everyone should read. And sometimes they disappear immediately. And then maybe they get some kind reviews and they yeah. say, oh, Yeah, good job, everybody. But then after two weeks, it's on to the next book. So I was ready for either possibility. And before before Oprah Winfrey called, I was getting lots of great feedback from, you know, I knew that it was getting really, really, really great advanced reviews. All the trades loved it and um CBS Sunday Morning, I taped a segment that will probably air sometime in May about it, you know, so it, it, it all, um, it, everything felt really good. But still, you know, yeah, what do you how, how do you how do you um, how do you stand out in a moment like this?
1: Yeah, so, and there was a lot of buzz about the book. I mean, as booksellers, the publishers were talking about this book uh, last fall. So, you know, we knew to pay attention, a lot of us read it, uh, really early, you know, but getting picked for Oprah's book club is a nice little cherry on top. Exactly. So here's a couple of questions from the, um, uh, our participants. Uh, you mentioned the difference between a few psychotic breaks and many more. What is the norm?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I think untreated, um, you know, something like one in 20 people with schizophrenia end up committing suicide. I mean, it's just a not a good, the lifespans are just super short for people who, who have psychotic break after psychotic break. One way or another, things go very badly for them. So I don't, know, I don't know if there's a way to measure a norm that way. I think what the antipsychotic drugs have done is, is they've, um, in some cases, they've prevented future uh, breaks from happening. Um, the problem is that it, the, the meds often come a little too late after the worst has happened. And so it's hard to turn back the clock for someone.
1: And, and you know, the, the, the added uh, uh, question of this person is, um, how many psychotic breaks do we experience? Maybe that we don't even know we are experiencing, which makes me think about when Don was in college, um, he had shared with us some of the experiences that he had that certainly at the moment were not considered indicative of schizophrenia.
0: Right, so that, uh, perfect example. I mean, Don, um, Donald's, uh his huge, big psychotic break, the one that sent him to Pueblo for the first time happened when he was in his mid-20s in 1970 when he tried to attack his wife. His wife was fine, but she was... He ended up in jail and then he ended up in Pueblo. So you could say that his first psychotic week was when he was 26 or 24, sorry. Yeah, 25. He was 25 then. But then you look at his medical records, the way that I did with help from Lindsay, I was able to find stuff that the family didn't even know. And we found that in his sophomore year in college, he ran into a bonfire. Nobody knows why. And then went to the health center to get treated for some minor burns. And he couldn't explain why he did that. And then he went to the health center again, several months later with a cat bite on his hand. And then he uh, was upset because a girlfriend broke up with him and he moved to a um, a dirt cellar of a, of a building because he had ran out of, run out of money and was living with no heat or hot water. And he killed another cat there and went to the health mm-hmm. center and talked about it. So these are obviously uh, major psychiatric moments for him that are happening years before that. It just speaks to the, to the early signs that can so easily be masked over if you try hard enough.
1: You know, and and that reminds me of another piece that I found fascinating. One of the boys was remarkably self-aware of his own illness and had his own quite smart observations about how the mental health professionals were treating people like him.
0: That's right. Uh, I think you're thinking of Joseph, who would see right, would, right. Look up at the clouds and say that a Chinese emperor was in the cloud and was talking to him. And then he would turn to one of his sisters who he was talking to, and he would say, "I'm having a hallucination." And then he would turn to her and say, "Are you sure you can't see it?" That, there was something very poignant about Joseph's case because yeah. uh, he was a gentle guy and and loved his family and was nice to everyone around him, and he was aware that that this was happening, which not every other brother could say. And yeah. I think we that's to, not to use the word relatable too much, but I think there, there, uh, there are people we may know in our lives who have limitations, whether it's um, a disability of some sort, who, who aren't aware, who, who are just um, living their lives without being self-conscious about it. And then there, there are the folks who know it and they're and, and very different experience, ways of experiencing the illness for sure. Yeah.
1: So one of the other questions I got a kick out of is what is the title of Margaret's book? She hasn't (laughs) written it yet, right?
0: (laughs) No, she hasn't. I hope I really want her to though.
1: Yeah. I I would love to see each of their stories. I, I, you know, you can't help but read this book and feel the compassion and affection that you bring to the story that I, as a reader, then felt that same compassion and affection for them, and particularly the two girls, or women.
0: Yeah, I, I liked them immediately. And they they are not the same. They're different people leading different lives now, but they both have so much to offer. And I think the fact that they are so different is helpful to readers, because they can read about both of them and, and, and see the different ways of reacting to the same sets of, of traumas in the same family.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm just checking if there are more questions uh, before we, I think we're good. Oh, somebody else shared, this is good because I didn't know what I was talking about. The Japanese practice that I was mentioning about repairing uh, pottery is, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but it's kintsugi, huh. K-I-N-T, s-u-g-i all right um so in closing our debut author (laughs) event um there's a couple of things i'd like to mention one is thank um all of you who joined us email us if you want to see things done differently you want more of this less of you know whatever uh any feedback as we uh, traits down this path would be uh, much appreciated. Uh, the other is uh, we are booksellers. Uh, Bookhampton's a bookseller. R.J. Joy is a bookseller. Wesley and R.J. Joy is a bookseller. So it would be really good if you bought a book. <laughs> that would be uh, appreciated by uh, Robert, his agent, his publisher, and our three uh, stores. So I urge you to do that. But I urge you to do that, not to, not just because uh, I'm a bookseller, but because this is this Hidden Valley Road is one of those profound books that manages to inform you, um, entertain you, and make you live in somebody else's shoes in a way that can't help but give you compassion and think about other people in a different way. And um, I just think you did an exquisite job with that, Robert. And I do think, um, I I think that you are in good company um, of Michael Lewis and Eric Larson and other writers, reporters who take a subject that we didn't even know we wanted to know about and make us thrilled that we learned about it. So uh, thank you for being our guinea pig.
0: <laughs> this has been a thrill, Roxanne. Thank you. Thanks so much for everything. And thanks to everyone else for, for listening as well. I really appreciate it.
1: All right. Well, great success on on your book and we look forward to seeing you again.
0: Along. So thanks so much.
1: You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by LitHub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, Johnny Diamond, and LitHub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.